Welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, excited to talk about 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7. This is a very confusing letter because there's so many dissensions and it's only one side and we don't know all the questions. And so there's a lot of misunderstandings, but it's a letter of correction. He's trying to realign the saints. It's not his first letter to the Corinthians, though. We're told in one of the chapters that he's already written them and he's heard back from the saints in Corinth. And so now he's writing them again, trying to correct things. And chapters one through six all deal with things that he has heard. And chapters seven through the end of the book and 15 deal with um, things that they have asked him and he is now answering. But we don't know those questions. So it's very difficult to try to figure it out. Just as a reminder, I want to talk to you a little bit about Corinth and a little bit about where it falls in the, the list of epistles. Remember, we talked earlier about the epistles being organized by length. They're not chronological. And 1 Corinthians is pretty early. We've got probably Galatians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians before 1 Corinthians, but it comes between the years of 54 and 57. He's probably writing this in Ephesus. He's already visited Corinth. He already was on his second mission. But now on his third mission, he is writing to them, giving them some advice before he comes to tell them he's coming. Now, it's probably written in the spring, shortly before he comes, but there's a, there's a lot of discussion on whether or not it could have been written in 57 or 55 or whatever. So I just, I just say it doesn't really matter. It's probably after he's already served with them for 18 months. So it's after that second mission, during his third mission time. We're told the author is Paul, chapter 1, verse 1. We're told that he's got a female saint who's carrying the letters. He's got a scribe, Sosthenes. We're also told who his audience is. He says they're Corinthians who are believing Paul, who are baptized members. In this book, we have half of the names are Greek and half of the names are Latin. I also have this chart to show you where the book of Corinthians falls in the historical sections of Acts. We're right here in chapters 18 through 21 on his third mission. Nero has become the Caesar ruling in Rome, and it's before he writes the difficult letters of imprisonment. And it's consistent with the time period from Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. Do you remember when Paul was being persecuted and he has a vision? It's actually the third vision of, of the visions that were he received that are recorded in the book of, of Acts. It says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep speaking. That's the Corinthian saints. That's where he says, don't leave. Well, the purpose, I think, is to correct these dissensions, these false teachers. There's a lot of people who are teaching false things. And it appears that Paul went back and forth in at least seven letters. I think in order to understand a lot of what Paul says, it helps to understand a little bit about Corinth, the location. So initially, it becomes a very important Roman place in 146 B.C., by 44 BC, Julius Caesar has conquered it and made it into a Roman colony, but it becomes the capital of Achaia, which is southern Greece, in 27 AD. Now, the problem is it's a double port city. And like most port cities, you get a lot of international people, you get a lot of transient people, and you got a lot of sailors who are looking for drink and promiscuity. The area of Corinth is also very fertile. Uh, had a, a Jewish synagogue that they'd been able to find. So we know that they had Jewish converts as well as Gentile converts in this congregation that are trying to work together, which was probably part of the problem of the arguments and the dissensions. 
One of the most famous things about Corinth was their temple to the goddess Venus. And they had 1,000 priestesses who were acting as prostitutes in the temple for everyone in the city to come and worship through prostitution. It was absolutely tragic. And immorality was so well known in this area that the word Corinth became used in terrible ways. Let me give you some example. To live like a Corinthian was to live a dissolute life. To play the Corinthian was to visit the house of ill repute. To fornicate was to Corinthianite. A Corinthian girl was a prostitute. A Corinth became a metaphor for fertility and usually illegitimately. So it's absolutely a worldly boomtown and it needed Christianity. And so the Lord told Paul when he's being persecuted, and when Paul came and said, I got to get out of here. I don't want anything to do with this filthy place. You know, Remember, he was raised as a, as a very, very strict um, Pharisee. And the Lord says, no, Christianity is needed. We need Christianity to, to be taught. And so he came, and it, that's exactly what happens. I really appreciate John W. Welch's book called Charting the New Testament. And in there, he not only has a lot of charts, but he also has every epistle organized. And I've got a copy of that here on my slides. But now let's move ahead into the text. And the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians all discuss the members' division and the need for unity. And he calls them on the need for unity to come unto Christ. He uses the name of Christ nine times in his introduction. Let's start with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son and Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is repeated over and over again. Verse 10 reads in the NIV, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. You know, he, this urgent plea is just shy of a commandment. You know, he's, he's really begging them. The way to find unity is to come unto Christ. Stop worrying about things that are not eternal. If it's not eternal, it's not important. That was one of my favorite things to tell my children as they were growing up. Verse 11 reads in the NIV, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me, and then he's going to go and tell them what Chloe taught them. This is very interesting to me because they remember they have house churches at this time. So Chloe is probably a wealthy Christian who's inviting a branch of saints to meet there at her house. And Paul respects Chloe enough that he is saying, we can depend on what she says. And she is reporting these things. She is, she's an upstanding member. This is absolutely phenomenal at this time in both the Greek, Roman, and Judaic world to have a woman's voice as a trusted source and one who's giving opinions that an apostle of Jesus Christ is using now to give advice from. It's, it's absolutely fabulous to see the way how early Christianity is using sisters to build the kingdom and using their voice and their opinions to help establish righteousness. Verse 12 continues on to read, every one of you saith, I'm a Paul, I'm Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And then Paul later on says, you know, I only baptized two of you. Oh, and the house of Stephanos, you know, he lists them by name. He said, I didn't come to baptize, but but why are you arguing? Do you think I baptized you under my name or did Apollos baptize you? No, we all baptized you in Jesus Christ. It's Christ's church, it's his kingdom. You know, he's really good at that. In verse 17, he reads, I came to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Now we read a little bit of more wisdom in the book of Romans where he uses a lot of 
Judaic debate techniques. And here he's saying, I'm not going to debate with you. I don't want to talk about the wisdom of the world. I want to preach Christ. Verse 18 reads in the NIV, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I've got to give you a little bit of background on the Roman and the Greek thought at the time. Anything physical was ridiculously awful. It's only the spirit that lives eternally. And so the idea that a God had a physical body that was crucified is, is blasphemy to them. And that's why Paul is saying, you know, it may be foolishness to many of our fellow human beings, but to us, it's because Satan had altered something that was so important, the shame of the wise. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, he then talks about the wisdom of God. Again, reading in the NIV to get the genders right. Brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. And skipping down to verse 5, I came so your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Continuing on in verse 7, he introduces a new thought. We spake the wisdom of God in a mystery, even in the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world, even our glory. And even in in a more literal translation, the BLB, it reads, which God foreordained before the ages of our glory. So he is talking about a pre-mortal existence here. And, you know, very, very, very few Christians believe this idea. And yet we find it here in Paul's teachings that the wisdom of God and the mysteries of God and what happened before this earth is not well known, but it was hidden wisdom. Now, the word wisdom, sophie, philosophy, comes from the study of wisdom, is very important to the Roman world, very important to this area of of Corinth, which is part of the ancient Greek that studied sophie all the time, wisdom. And he's saying, you know, the wisdom of God is what we're seeking because God knew things before the times. Verse 9, he continues on, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. This is such a beautiful verse, and he's hearkening back to Isaiah. There's three portions of Isaiah that refer to this as well, and all of them are in my handout and in my slides. This message of God's love permeates Paul's letters. We read about it in Romans. We're now reading about it again in 1 Corinthians. We're going to read about it next week in the second half of 1 Corinthians He moves on in chapter 2, verse 10, all the way through chapter 3, verse 3, to the spirit of revelation. He says the way to combat this disunity is through a connection with God. Our personal inspiration needs to be through the spirit of God and connecting with him. Every day, every minute, we need to make sure we are not offending the spirit. We need to be asking and doing all things in the name of the Lord and always remembering him so that we can have the spirit to be with us. Chapter 2, verse 13 reads, We speak in the words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. I've mentioned a few times that I'm losing my vision. I like to think of it as a seeing eye God. The Spirit is my seeing eye God. I want to follow the Spirit as if I was using a dog to help me move forward and see. In verse 14, he says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. You know, if we are being filled with pride, if we're being selfish, We are not going to be able to hear the sweet spirit whispering quietly in our mind. Unless we are approaching the Lord with meekness and humility, we aren't going to hear the Lord. As Elder Bednar recently quoted Elder Scott, if we've got a jalapeno of anger and pride, we're not going to get the whole message. Continuing on now in chapter 2, verse 16 of 1 Corinthians, we read, Who hath known the mind of the Lord? 
that he may instruct him. And that is very similar also to what he said in Romans. You know, we see so many overlaps in these epistles, which helps identify these are written by Paul. Verse 3 now continues on in the NIV. Brothers and sisters, I could not address to you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. You're infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food. You know, he said, you're, you're not progressing. You're just acting like a baby in your spiritual development. Please, please move forward. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 to 15, he then moves on to another idea of building the church on Jesus's foundation. And in 6, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God that gave the increase. It's again, this beautiful image of our faith is growing and it all comes from the spirit of Christ. Verse 11 says, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is of Jesus Christ. And our Savior talked about this need for a firm foundation of the on revelation. And then Paul, again, is preaching the same teachings our Savior taught. Paul is not starting Christianity. That is a very common thing right now amongst theologians and biblical scholars, that Christianity was formed and developed by Pauline doctrines. No, it was not. If we go back to the original writings and we look at Paul in its entirety, he is teaching Christ and he is preaching Christ's doctrine. And we have interpreted Paul in many Christian denominations differently than I believe what was intended by Christ. Let's move ahead now to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. From verses 16 to 21, he talks about the fact that we are temples of God. And I chose this beautiful blueprint of the Oakland Temple because my grandpa was so influential in helping the land of this temple that this is very meaningful to me, that the construction of a temple is what's happening with all of us as disciples of Christ. We are as if a blueprint and we're having to be built and we need to add firm structures and we need to add and beautify so that we we can become temples of Christ. Verse 16 says, Know ye not that ye are the temples of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? So how is our body a temple? If it is the place where the Spirit of God can dwell, because a temple is a house of God. And if the Spirit can dwell with us, then we become a house of God. And he continues on in the same thing in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, being servants of Christ. He said, Regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God's. I love the image of a steward. You know, it's not a slave. You're, you're an heir, but you are given an assignment. You are giving a calling and you have to take responsibility for it. I felt like all of my children were stewards to me, that God loaned them to me, that I was to be a missionary to them and raise them in the love of the gospel. I feel my church callings are stewardships, that I have the responsibility to nurture this soil and to plant um, my sweet primary children. And the mysteries of God are the things perhaps talking about the temple. I'm not sure, but we know that Paul had all of the ordinances. We read them all over his gospels. For example, in chapter 11, we're going to talk about during special prayers, women veil their faces. He talks about in 1 Peter, there's an eternal marriage where couples become joint heirs of Christ. In this very book, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talks about baptisms of the dead. And as we read Ephesians and Hebrews and the epistles of 1 John and the book of Revelation, it talks about washings and anointings and clothings and receiving new names. I'm wondering if that word mystery is being used for the ordinances that we refer to as sacred temple 
covenants. The word mystery is translated as a secret of an initiation that is absolutely necessary. We also learn that not only did Joseph Smith say that Paul had the endowment and the ordinances, but the early church saints had all of their covenants that we now have restored again. Chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians reads in the ESV of verse 2, it is required for stewards that they be found faithful and motives of their heart. I love this. It's not just faithful in our actions. I can't just show up to church and think I'm checking the box. It has to be with a pure and humble and meek heart as I go before that sacrament table. It has to be a humble and pure heart as I go ministering and as I serve in my home. It has to be that our motives are to serve God with meekness and humility and charity. He continues on in the next portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 13, to ask us to not to be so proud and not to be so judgmental. There's obviously real problems in the church here. And he says in verse 7 of chapter 4 in the BSB, who made you so superior? What do you have that you did not receive? You know, nothing, nothing that you have is, is, is yours alone. It's, it's from God. These are all gifts of God. Don't think that you're so great. Verse 11 continues on in the NIV. We go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. Then he skips down to verse 13. When we are cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. You know, he's teaching us how to be peacemakers. Our prophet has given us a whole sermon in General Conference of 2023 on becoming peacemakers. Chapter 4, verse 14 reads in the NIV, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you, my dear children. Skipping down to verse 17, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love and who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of the way of life in Christ. Now we have a change of subject in chapter 5, and now he's going to address the problems with the sexual sins, which are just saturated the area of Corinth. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, talks about fornication. Now remember the word fornication is pornea, and it includes all sorts of immoral behaviors, and that's, I think, where our root for pornography comes from. They're all breaking the law of chastity. And in verse 1 of the NIV, it reads, it's actually reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you. Paul addresses two problems on either end of the spectrum of this. Initially, he talks here in chapter 5 about these libertines who says, love is, you can do anything you want. Love is completely free. There's no responsibility. And then he addresses in chapter 7, those people that say, never touch the body. One of my favorite verses in all of 1 Corinthians is chapter 5, verse 7. And he makes this beautiful analogy of Jesus Christ as the symbol of the Passover lamb. Now, I know we talked about this at the Last Supper. I know we talked about this at the death and resurrection, but I just am thrilled that Paul talks about it here. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. That's the NIV. This idea of the sacrifice of God as the lamb of God is also consistent with the vocabulary in the Book of Mormon. In chapter 6, he gets angry at them going to law. He said, why are you suing yourselves? Why can't you become uh, mutual enough to work things out? Can't you give up some of your high-minded ways? And can you work things out? Can you compromise? And can you learn how to have mutuality? He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you yourselves cheat 
and do wrong even against your own brothers, meaning your own fellow saints in the gospel. This is the BSB translation. These lawsuits are a real problem. And he says, I expect you to someday to be able to judge. And so how can I expect you to be a judge if you can't even work out and be a mediator in your communities? He says in verses two and three of chapter six, do you know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to even judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? It's just beautiful. He continues on in verses 9 to 11 in 1 Corinthians in the BSB. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Now, when we are washed and anointed, we are made holy. Sanctified is the word for holy. And um, I believe that this refers not only to our baptism, but our initiations in the temple, our initiatories that allow us to have this cleansing of the spirit again to be made clean. Verse 12 in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 reads, some of you say we can do anything we want. And in the CEV translation, the common English version, it reads, but I tell you, not everything is good for us. Food for the belly and belly for foods. And then in a very literal translation of the BLB, it reads, but God will destroy both. You know, he's saying, stop arguing about if it's kosher, if you can eat pork, if you can eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols. The arguing is more of a problem. And I feel the same way about so many things, even amongst my own um, dearly beloved friends who believe the Book of Mormon. If you're going to argue about archaeology and geography, you're arguing about the wrong things. The text is to bring us to Christ. We're not going to argue about where Zarahemla is. We're going to come unto Christ and say, let's all repent and let's all help and serve each other. It also appears that at this time, there was some sort of a scandal about fornication in the church. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 6 leaves the lawsuits now and goes back to the problems with sexual immorality. And then that will continue on through chapter 7. Chapter 6, verse 13 reads, The body is not intended for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. That's the BSB. He's saying freedom does not mean license to do whatever one wants without obligations. You know, by coming unto Christ, we're getting, we're getting freedom from our sins and we're getting uh, the ability to repent. But does, does the fact that we can repent means that we don't have to take any responsibility for obeying God's laws? No, you know, continuing on in verse 15, the BSB, it says, do you know that your bodies are members of Christ? You know, he's bought us. He's paid for us. He's suffered for our sins. Skipping forward, he says, shall I then, and then to verse 20, unite them with a prostitute? Never. You were bought with a price. I want to go back and read verse 19, though, because he repeats again something he had in chapter three, and I think he's repeating it for emphasis. This is one of his major themes, and he wants to bring it home. He reads, know ye not that ye are, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. And he's trying to say, how can you be defiling your body? Those of us that don't control our appetites, whether it's food or passions or, or our tongues, we are not receiving all that Christ has for us. The natural man is an enemy to God. Section 88 repeats the same thing. Actually, this was repeated not only in section 88, but again at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple in section 109. The Lord wants us to learn this that your incomings may be in the name of the Lord, that your outgoings may be in the name of the Lord, that all your salutations may be in the name of the Lord, with uplifted hands unto the Most High. 
He's referring to the fact that everything we need to do needs to be in the name of the Lord. It's not only our baptism covenant, not our temple covenants, but it is a discipleship, something that we need to put on. Now, in chapter 7, we begin the second half of the epistles where now Paul is answering their questions. And you know when the questions come because Paul often repeats the phrase, now concerning. And I've got these here in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning marriage and divorce. And then in verse 25, virginity. Chapter 8, verse 1, foods offered to idols. And then chapter 12 and 16, we'll talk all about those next week. But sometimes he changed subjects without saying now concerning. Like in chapter 7, verse 17, he's going to talk about being called on a mission. And what's our status? And you'll see others as well in chapter 9 and 11 and 15. So let's start with the first question and answer, chapter 7, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. And the Joseph Smith translation adds a helpful little addition here, but it's also found in many of the modern translations. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, saying, and now we get their question, which is very helpful. This is not Paul's idea. This is their misidea. Is it good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, he's talking about this anti-physical, the aesthetics. This is a Greek and Roman philosophy that had percolated down into the church in a very unhealthy fashion. He's just going to talk about sexual relations. And in chapter 7, verse 2 in the JST, he says, Nevertheless, I say, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and every woman have her own husband. You know, he's saying marriage is good. And if you read all of the corpus of the New Testament together, and of course the Old Testament, we have this overwhelming witnesses that marriage is good. You know, there's no celibacy in early Christianity. It's not till the fourth century that they start talking about it. And it's not made a law for the priest in the Catholic faith until a thousand years after Christ. This is not part of the early Christian teachings. This was added on over arguments about property. I studied a lot of Catholic history. This is not something that was originally part of early Christianity. So he starts with a question and gives the answer. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, the Joseph Smith translation adds a very important word, depart not from, then we continue on with the King James, the other, except it be with consent from a time to come together again, that Satan may not tempt you with your inconsistency. He's saying it's not good for husband and wives to live apart. Now, you can have a consent for a time, and he's going to talk a lot about missionary service. He talks about himself being, being removed from his wife for a time. Um, we don't know exactly Paul's marriage situation now, but we know he was married before. He talks about it in other epistles. It's, actually, he talks about it in this epistle too, but not right here. So he said there can be a time when there's a period of consent when you're separated, but only for a short time. And their missions usually were not as long as Paul's missions are. We do not know what the question and answer was talking about, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, it appears that they're talking about going on missions. He says, now to the unmarried and the widows, as I am. Now, this is the BSB translation. Is he talking about that he is a widow or that he is unmarried or that he is serving without his family right now? We don't know, but the early saints did know. In verse 9, he says, but if they cannot, and then the Joseph Smith translation adds, abide, let them marry. This is back to King James. For it is better to marry than, Joseph Smith translation adds, that any should commit sin. You know, he's constantly saying, we need to live the law of chastity. And we are made mortal bodies to be married. It is good to be together. It is good to have a husband and wife. And remember, they were getting married very young. 
And these people are teenagers when they're married. And he's saying, stay with your wife. So they were serving missions after they were married. He then addresses divorce in chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. In the NIV, he reads, A wife must not separate herself from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else become reconciled to her husband. A husband must not divorce his wife. Remember in this period of time, the average Greek and Roman had four to five divorces each, men and women. And it was just flagrantly had a lot of relationships intimately without being married. And it was an awfully immoral time. And so Paul is addressing them and he's saying, it's much better to stay married. He's going to talk about divorce later. And he gives exceptions. And he says, if someone leaves, you don't need to feel guilt. I want you to feel peace. It's not, it's not bad. Stay connected to God. You can do this. You can do this. You know, marriage was very difficult in a world, especially in Corinth, where people had such very difficult views of morality to deal with. And in verse 12 to 16 of chapter 7, he then talks about marriages between people of different faith traditions. He says, if a brother or a wife, so he's talking about people who are converts, a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him. This is the NIV. Just because someone doesn't believe in your faith traditions doesn't mean you need to have a divorce. If someone doesn't have your faith traditions, means you need to work things out if you can. Continuing on in verse 14, he says, that the sanctification of a believing wife helps. You know, this is beautiful. He says, else your children are unclean, but now they are holy. He said, can't you see if, if you're a, a Christian, you can bless your unbelieving family and stay married for your children's sake if needed, if it's right. But he also says there are times when it's not right. Verse 15 says, if the unbeliever leaves, let him go. The believing brother or sister is not bound in such case, and God has called you to live in peace. You don't need to feel awful remorse and guilt if an unbelieving spouse leaves. You need to maintain your love of Christ. Do not allow hatred and anger to take over. Get rid of the contention. He does a beautiful job here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 24, he talks about circumcision. Remember the word circumcision often means covenants. But he's not referring to church callings when he refers to circumcision. So let's just look here at verse 17 of chapter 7 in the BSB. It says, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them. And then skipping down to verse 20 and 21, he says, each one should remain in the situation where he is in when he's called. So if you're called on a mission and you're married, stay married. If you're called as a single man, stay single. You know, he says, were you a slave when you were called? Do not let that concern you. But if you can gain your freedom, take opportunity. Remember, one third of the Roman world is living in servitude. And the word slave and servant are the same word. It's, and you're released at age 30 or 35 if you're Greek or Roman. And as a Jew, you only serve for seven years. It's not like American uh, and the Western world for slavery. It's much more like the Middle Ages where you had an indentured servant or something for a period of time to help them get back on their feet or if they need help. But this is very interesting. He's saying, if you have a call to serve a mission, just stay in whatever place you are. Don't change. Just stay apart for a short period of time and arrange with your wife and your children that you're going to be gone for a month or two. You know, many missions were not as long as Paul's. And it was the same way in the early church too. You know, Joseph Sr.'s first mission up to his family is just for a few months, things like that. A few weeks, actually. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 to 26 has a nice Joseph Smith translation at the end. Concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment. And then in verse 26, this is good for the present distress. And then he adds, for a man so to remain that he may do greater good. Now he's talking about if you are engaged, you have a virgin, you know, you, you're already planned on being married. Try to go out on your mission while you're still single. But he says in verse 29 in the Joseph Smith translation, I speak unto you who are called unto the ministry. This is very helpful. Now we understand. He's not saying celibacy is best. He is saying if you have a mission call, if you've been called to serve and leave your family, for, and then the King James translation continues, this I say, brethren, the time that remaineth is but short. That's KJV short. And then he goes back to the Joseph Smith translation, that ye shall be sent forth unto the ministry. Even, goes back to the KJV, they have wives shall be as they that had none. Continues on to the Joseph Smith translation, for ye are called and chosen to do the Lord's work. This is an enormous clarifying important understanding. I am so grateful that we have the Joe Smith translation here to say, no, 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 no. This is not about celibacy. He's arguing these two points. Are we supposed to never touch a woman? Are we supposed to always touch every woman we want or man or whatever? Sexual relations were completely either closed or open. He's saying, no, 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 no. The answer is the law of chastity. The answer is marriage. And sometimes our marriages have been broken up because of challenges with mission calls. That's ridiculous. Keep yourself engaged, keep yourself married, but continue to serve the Lord. And if you're a slave, try to receive your freedom, try to work for freedom. Verse 36 says, if any man thinketh that he behave himself uncommonly towards his virgin, that means they're engaged, the Joseph Smith adds that, whom he hath espoused, and then continuing back to King James, let him do what he, and then the Joseph Smith translation adds, hath promised. He sin not, let him marry. You know, follow through with your promises. If you're engaged, follow through. Chapter 7, verse 38 in the NIV reads, He who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Joseph um, has already explained that if you can serve your mission without your spouse, it's easier. Now remember, the men are are under 20 years old usually when they're engaged. They're usually under 18 when they're engaged. The girls are usually under 12 and a half when they're engaged. These are very young. And he's saying, go out and serve. You can get married a little bit later. And then Paul turns to give advice for widows. And this is chapter seven, verse 39 in the NIV. A woman is free to marry anyone she wishes, but she must belong to the Lord. This is a dramatic departure from arranged marriages. In the Greco-Roman world, they arranged marriages. In the Judaic world, they arranged marriages. And here he's saying, if a woman is a widow, she can choose who she wants to marry. She can choose to stay a widow or she can choose to marry again. We are also blessed to have teachings from modern prophets on marriage. And I'd like to read from section 49, verse 15. Whosoever forbiddeth to marry is not ordained of God, for marriage is ordained of God. Now, Joseph taught this in March of 1831. I don't know if you remember, he's, the church is being um, taken to the Shakers and they believed that celibacy was the best way to live. There was a congregation not too far from Kirtland at this time. So he's telling them, no, marriage is ordained of God. Paul wasn't saying what we've misunderstood him to say. Go back and read the Greek, read the Joseph Smith translation. 
And that is where we are ending in the bottom of chapter seven. And the rest of First Corinthians continues to answer these other questions that they asked Paul. And his letter is just a Q&A. And we don't know all the questions. We don't know all of his answers. We don't know the perspective. It's a difficult book. But usually we can find it by comparing and contrasting across all of the Pauline corpus and modern revelation. I also believe that before our scripture study, when we start with prayer, we can ask the Lord to teach us what is right, to teach us truth, especially on marriage and matters of morality. I feel our generation is almost as confused as the Greco-Romans, and we need God's help. May we receive God's help in all of our scripture studies and all of our walks of life, I pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.